I invite you to come with me back to the Gospel of John again this morning in the fourth chapter. John's Gospel, fourth chapter. And we will read two verses, verses 23 and 24. John 4, 23, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well after she's raised a question about worship. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Grant to us now, Father, by your spirit that we rightly hear and understand and apply this your word. Oh, Father, take what has been prepared. Use it for your glory. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we begin this series on worship, actually we launched it last week. Let me give this quick explanation. The typical model of preaching from here in this place has been begin at the beginning of a book of the Bible, preach through to the end of that book. And that will always be the primary diet of this church. There are times, however, it can be helpful to do what I will dub theological preaching. That is, where you try to see all the text says about particular themes within the text of Scripture. And so the next several weeks are going to look like that as we take time to consider worship and then after that to consider the attributes of the God whom we worship. So know this, we will go back on Sunday mornings to books of the Bible, but not for a little while. Now, of course, the test always, whether you're preaching through a book of the Bible or doing what I've dubbed theological preaching, is still whether or not the sermon and the text match. The test is always, is it biblical? And so my prayer, my target, my intent, my conviction is that what I do from here is that. So please understand, as far as intention, as far as commitment, nothing changes in doing this kind of preaching. But I do think in our era, our time and our church, it is helpful for us to take a bit of time to consider this matter of worship. I've often used this bit of a quote from J.I. Packer in his book, uh, A Quest for Godliness, the Puritan vision of the Christian life. And in that, chap- in that book, he has a chapter on worship, Puritan worship. And here's what he said. I'm going to give you the whole context. I do not suppose that I'm the only evangelical who finds that, the, that actually the exercise of worship, and then he defines it, the deliberate lifting of one's eyes from man and his mistakes to contemplate God and His glory. 
I'm not the only evangelical who finds the exercise of worship grows increasingly precious as the years go by and brings solace and refreshment to the Spirit in a way that nothing else can do. The deliberate lifting of one's eyes from man and his mistakes to contemplate God and His glory. That's a pretty good working definition of worship. Now I realized after last Sunday's message I had mentioned at the end something from John Piper that is his quote, missions exist because worship doesn't and I confused some of you. Well, I, I never want to be confusing so let me expand on that just briefly. What Piper is advocating is this. The task of missions, the task of evangelism is to go among a people who does not truly worship the one true God, declare to them the gospel, the good news of reconciliation to that God so that those who have not been worshipers become worshipers. We're not saying by that, Piper's not saying, and we're not, none of us trying to imply that there isn't true worship of God in all sorts of places, but there are entire people groups who have never ever heard the gospel literally billions of people and the task of missions is to bring the good news to them that they might truly worship god worship is our proper response to god now there's all sorts of errors i think about worship um, and we'll address these in greater or lesser detail as we go along in the coming weeks, but sometimes we end up equating worship with singing. Singing can be worship, but worship is more than singing. Sometimes we separate worship from preaching. Everything you did up to this point was worship, and now I'm talking, and so it's gone from worship to speaker audience. No. Well, I mean, yes, but no. Assuming worship requires an obvious emotional response. Or, assuming worship doesn't call for any emotional response. Assuming that what I want in worship and what I'd enjoy should define what's done. Oh my word, we are such consumers. We want what we want. Well, I didn't like that part of the worship. Well, we weren't worshiping you. Assuming a worship service should mostly be about the participants. That's a mistake. Another one is assuming the worship service should have an exclusively Godward focus. Oh, I just made some of you nervous. But part of the singing and the praying and the preaching and the reading of the Word, it is not only a vertical matter, it's a horizontal matter where we are encouraging one another in worship. Assuming the way we do worship is better or worse than the way someone else is practicing it. Now when it comes to understanding the Bible, as we think about worship, kind of trying to lay groundwork here that I hope will explain 
what we do and why we do it. See, there's a number of ways to approach the Bible. If you're Roman Catholic, you approach the Bible in terms of the Bible is the Word of God, but you also have a tradition that is of equal, in some ways, authority. And the tradition defines how you interpret the text. If you're a a good Lutheran, you see the Bible in basically two ideas, a tension between law and gospel, and everything in the Scripture is seen in terms of law and gospel. In our circles, in more Baptistic circles, what you find typically is that Baptists, if they've thought about it, now that's, that's another question entirely, but if they've thought about it, they think about interpreting the Bible either in terms of what's called covenant theology or dispensational theology. Now I know, I just lost some of you. There he goes, big words again, big words. Don't worry, we're not going to take much time here. I know some of you are terribly disappointed, but you'll get over it, or not. Covenant theology, typically embraced by Presbyterians and many, 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 if not overwhelmingly, Reformed Baptists, and then on the other side, dispensational theology, typically embraced by lots of Baptists, especially more fundamental Baptists, and I'd say many within Southern Baptist Convention. Now, I'm not going to take time to go into all that that's about, okay? It's two different ways of looking at the text of Scripture. And I have friends in both camps, and I have people I love in both camps. I have great respect for it. But I'm going to tell you that for our purposes today, I don't subscribe to either. I'm between them. Now, some of you say, well, there's no in-between. Yeah, there is. Think with me for a moment just about the biblical covenants. Now, first, what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement, typically. As we think about covenants, covenants were used in uh, situations other than God relating to His people. You find models of these covenants whenever a nation went in and conquered another nation. The fancy term for the covenants at that time were suzerainty treaties. Now, you don't need to remember that. It was just a covenant relationship, and here's what it had. It told about the conquering king, who he was, what he promised to do, both good and bad. Here's his duty. The conquered people, here was their status, here was what they expected to do, and here are the consequences. If you obeyed, this happened. If you disobeyed, this happened. That ought to sound a little bit familiar. This is how God relates to us. It is a covenant relationship. I think if you look at the text of Scripture, I think there is a creation covenant, although it's not necessarily called that. The word doesn't appear in those early chapters of Genesis, but covenant language is there. There's a covenant with Noah. This is between the Lord and Noah and creation. There's an Abrahamic covenant, the Lord, Abraham, and the nations. There's an Israelite covenant, or the Mosaic covenant, the Lord, Israel, and the nations. There's a Davidic covenant, the Lord, the son of David, and the nations, the promise of a successor to David. And then there's the new covenant. And I think the new covenant has two elements here. 
It's a covenant between the Father, Jesus, the new man, the Father, Jesus, and his people, and ultimately a new heavens and a new earth. This is called by many new covenant theology, what I'm about to espouse, or I'll use this term, and it's called by some progressive covenantalism. Now, when I say progressive, everybody here go, politics. Don't you be a progressive. Not about politics. The word progressive has lots of usages, all right? All that's being affirmed is this. Progressive seeks to underscore that God reveals more and more and more of himself in each succeeding covenant. You learn some things about God in the creation covenant. You learn more things about God in the covenant with Noah. You learn more things about God in the covenant with Abraham. You learn even more in the Mosaic covenant. You learn more in the Davidic covenant, but you learn the most in the new covenant. The new covenant has a unity of God's plan and promise. Everything culminates in that new covenant. Now, let's think about it this way. You're saying, okay, Doug, you're an awful way, long ways out there. How does this apply to worship? Stay with me a minute. There are differences between old covenant and new. Right? And the reality is, if you don't understand everything focusing towards the new covenant, I think you're going to end up in places you don't want to be. Let me illustrate it this way. You're there at John 4, and you can hold on to that place. But how about, look at Isaiah 6 with me for just a minute, okay? Now, we, we reference this fairly regularly. It's a profound text. Isaiah is in a moment of crisis because... The king, Uzziah, has died. And Uzziah has been overall a wonderfully good king for the kingdom of Judah. And he's concerned. What's going to happen now that King Uzziah has died? And you get to that sixth chapter, and we're given the time frame. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Okay? So, you have the setting. You're in the temple. God's in the temple. Isaiah sees the vision. And literally, the text could be translated, woe is me, I am disintegrating. I am falling apart. 
for I've seen the Lord. Now, let me just stop and give you a moment. My friend, every time I hear somebody say, well, I saw the Lord, and it was just this wonderful, cozy, delightful, I pretty much know it wasn't the Lord you saw. I have yet to see any event where the Lord is seen in any capacity that the person doing the seeing wasn't devastated by the sight. Even John in the book of Revelation, when he sees the risen, glorified Christ, falls down. And nowhere in the text does that say that's a bad thing. Okay? Isaiah's a prophet. What's the first thing that comes to mind? The very instrument he's used as a prophet to speak is the thing that he says is filthy. So the angel goes to the altar, he gets cold. I've, every time I read this, it just, mm. And he takes the coal and he touches Isaiah's lips. But be careful that you don't miss. Where did the coal come from? The altar. What's done on the altar? Sacrifices for sin. Okay? Now you got that one? Got that in your mind? All right, go all the way to the end of your Bible. Revelation. Well, I don't mean I don't mean maps and I don't mean concordance. I mean revelation. Okay. Revelation, the fifth chapter. Revelation 5, you start at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now, we didn't take time to look at all. If you read all of the fourth chapter of Revelation, the first few verses of chapter 5, and take up at chapter 5, verse 6, where we did, you see this exalted vision of God upon His throne, the cry, Holy, Holy, Holy. All of that's there, and 
John's beholding all this, right? He's watching it. And uh, he who sits on the throne has a scroll in his hand. And the scroll, we believe, is the story of history. It's what's going to happen. And the question goes out, who's worthy to open the scroll and to look at its contents? And said a search is takes, takes place. And they look all over heaven and they look all over. And they can't find anybody. And it says John weeps. They wept because there was no one worthy until an angel said, wait, wait a minute. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the triumphant one, he is worthy. And when John lifts his eyes, he sees not a lion, but what? Lamb. And the lamb takes the scroll and the worship service breaks out. Now, there are parallels between the vision in Isaiah 6 and the vision of Revelation 4 and 5. And there are some variations between the two. But herein is the most wondrous of the variations. There is no longer an altar. There is the Lamb. The Lamb has come. The Lion of the tribe of Judah has come. Messiah has come. And he has triumphed. And that changes everything about worship. In Isaiah's vision, it's him and the angels. Now, why is that? Because what Isaiah is commissioned to do, and how many times have you and I heard missionary messages from Isaiah 6? Here am I, send me. Nobody wants to read the rest of Isaiah 6. Because what it says is, I send you to people who will not listen. I send you to people who will not repent. I send you with a message of judgment. But my friend, the message in Revelation 4 and especially Revelation 5 is not just that Isaiah has his sins cleansed. It's that there's a people beyond reckoning who have their sins atoned for. That's the picture. And when you see the picture of worship, it is Christocentric. The difference central to all we believe in practice, the first advent, the incarnation, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has changed everything. He is the focus of everything in the Old Testament. From creation, fall, through Noah, through Abraham, through Moses, through David, Everything is aimed to Him. And since then, everything we do looks back to Him, up to Him, and out to Him. Worship must be practiced in Christ to be true worship. Now why speak to that? Because 
Christ's coming and the new covenant have brought changes to worship. Now, it is intriguing to me how we borrow terminologies at times, somewhat loosely it seems, thoughtlessly, from Old Testament and move forward. And I'm I'm not quibbling too much, but uh, it always intrigued me that when you went to one of our Baptist camps, where, where, where you gathered to worship, what they always called it? Tabernacle. Really? Tabernacle. Huh. And people talk about facilities as being consecrated. And they talk about the front of Baptist churches having altars. And I want to say, folks, when did we start acting Catholic? Oh, I got some of your attention just there. There are changes in worship because of the coming of Christ. Let me just go through this quickly. There are three, I believe, major changes that affect worship. Number one, a change in place, location of worship. The Old Covenant included a great deal of information about tabernacle, temple. The construction of both was under the direction of the Lord. The tabernacle, the tent, was a movable place of worship. It was portable. And everybody connected to it, the Levites, all had a task. And you can read that in the early parts in the Pentateuch, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, right along in there, right? And everything was made so they could pack the whole thing up and move it because they were a people on the move. When they finally get to the land of promise and they arrive and they they stay put, and ultimately, David takes the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites, Mount Zion, what becomes known as Mount Zion, belongs to the people of Israel. And behold, David wanted to build it, and the Lord wouldn't let him. But he got everything together, and then Solomon builds the temple viewed as one of the seven wonders of the world. And when you read the descriptions of that glorious temple in Kings, Chronicles, it's a stunning thing. But it reflected what was already in the tabernacle. Now, let me give you an idea. They all had basically the same furnishings. There was an entry. There was a place for washing, a laver. There was a a place for offering sacrifices, an altar. There was a place for coming near to God, the holy place that had a table with bread on it, food, fellowship symbolized, a candlestick, light from the Lord, and a censer with incense in it symbolizing prayer, and it's right there in front of what was called the veil. And the veil isolated what was called the most holy place or the holy of holies, perfect cube. And the only thing in there was the Ark of the Covenant. 
Now, finally, I got something that some of you know because you've seen Raiders. I'll take any data that you've got to work from. How's that? This Ark of the Covenant, Ark meaning container, it holds something, held primarily the thing that was there were the tablets of stone upon which is written the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the basis of the covenant relationship with Israel. And that was about place. Wherever the tabernacle went, God went with them. Now I'll rephrase that. Wherever God went, the tabernacle went. When they make the temple, God occupies the temple. And that's why everything in the Old Testament seems to be, especially when you read it in the Psalms, going up to Jerusalem to go meet with God because that's the place you met with God. They weren't denying that God was omnipresent. God was everywhere. But God, to meet with Him in worship, the only place you could truly do that was the city of Jerusalem in the temple. And that's why every Jew, under the command of God, would seek annually to go to as many of the festivals as they could. It was about location. This is no longer true. For we're told Christ is the tabernacle. And Christ is the temple. John 1.18 And the Word became flesh and dwelt literally tabernacled, tented among us. We've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or John chapter 2, Jesus has cleared out the temple. The Jews said to Him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. And they said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? But He was speaking about the temple of His body. But further, believers are the temple. Both community and individually. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Do you not know that you, all, plural, are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Or Ephesians 2.21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So no longer is meeting with God in worship, in atonement, in a connection anchored to a place. Now let me carefully say something. For many of us, there are certain locations, certain places that are in our memory sanctified and holy because of something God did at that place. There's a living room in a little farmhouse outside my hometown and a window where I remember I stood and prayed for the Lord to take me, to make me this. There are numbers of places for all of us. Whether through birth or death or suffering or gathered worship. Small group that are sanctified to us 
Not because the place is holy, but because the Lord who loves us did something glorious there. But my friend, please, while I give thanks that God gives us this place, this is not church. This is the building for the church. We no longer are tied to locale. God's temple is found throughout the world, wherever God's people are. So a change of location or place. Second change, a change in mediators and participants in worship. In the Old Testament, you have a very ordered and ordained priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. Based on family and succession, they had specialized duties, specialized diet, specialized provisions, specialized clothes. Everything was special and only certain folks could do this act of worship. But we get to the New Testament and we are told Christ is our priest. Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. He had to become a merciful, faithful high priest. And remember the author of Hebrews spends a lot of time on this because he says, let me point something out. Jesus wasn't born in the right tribe to be a priest. He's not part of the tribe of Aaron. He's not connected to Levi. He's out of Judah. That's why the author of Hebrews said, actually, he echoes back to another high priest back in the book of Genesis, one Melchizedek, whose name literally means king of righteousness. Now, I'm not, I don't think that was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, I'm sorry to say. I think he was a real guy, and a real man that walked around, living, mortal, human being. That's not a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. He's simply saying he's like him. Hebrews 3.1, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Hebrews 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who's been passed, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We've got a priest. His name's Jesus. But beyond that, you're priests. Every true believer is a priest. 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. There's the temple reference. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Then he talks about the stone that was rejected, that becomes the cornerstone. And then at verse 9, 1 Peter 2, but you are, and he gives four descriptors, Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people of his own possession. You should call no one a priest in this sense ever on earth unless you apply it to every single believer because every Christian is a priest. Ladies, that includes you. There is no gender specificity here. It's not that the men are the priests. 
I get nervous sometimes when I hear people say, well, every father, every husband, he is the priest of his home. Don't find it anywhere in the text, not even once. All believers are priests before the Lord. Now, you ought to be the head of your house, sir, and you ought to lead. But don't arrogate to yourself a role that isn't yours. You're not a priest any more than your wife or your believing children are priests. So we have a change of location. We have a change in mediators, participants. Finally, we have a change in practices in worship. Under the terms of the Mosaic legislation, and even seen throughout the Old Testament, there were sacrifices. Now, if you read under the Israelite covenant, the Mosaic, you had a whole lot of sacrifices, right? You ever read that whole thing? You go through there? I hope you have at some point. And depending on what you did, here's what you brought for sacrifice. And it was adjusted both for the severity of your sin, and then it was adjusted for your socioeconomic realities. So if you did this sin and you had enough money, you brought this sacrifice. But if you were poor, here was the lowest end level of what you could bring and still get by. And it was all laid out for you. My friends, hear what I'm about to say. When you come to the new covenant, all of that ends. All of that ends. And I'll, I'll say this a step further. I don't know what to do when I have brothers and sisters, this confuses me, who think there's going to be a future day where there's actually going to be a rebuilt temple and sacrifices under a millennial reign of Christ at that temple. I don't know what to do with that when the text of Scripture says Jesus is once and for all the final atonement and sacrifice for sins. Come with me for just a moment. I know you're wondering, is this going to wrap up? It will. How about Hebrews chapter 10? And starting that first verse, I mean, just before at the end of chapter 9, and just as it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, chapter 10, verse 1, since the law has but a, was but a shadow or has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities, it can never, never, pay attention, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. It is written of me in the scroll of the book. And he goes on to note, The Lord commanded these sacrifices. Notice in the end of verse 9, he does away with the first, that is the first covenant, in order to establish the second. And by that will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now pay attention. 
And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christian, did you hear that? For by one sacrifice he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now, I've got to be careful because this I could camp on and preach another sermon. I know I, I won't, but I could. Christian, you are in the process of being sanctified, made more like Christ. But understand that that process of being sanctified is anchored in this certainty. You are already in the sight of God perfected because of the death of Christ. See, this is, when you start giving yourself misery over how bad you're doing at sanctification, and I'm not telling you you're doing a good job, you're probably not. The minute you start anchoring your assurance in how well you're doing is the moment you're doomed to never have assurance. It is not how well you're progressing that is your comfort. It is that Christ has died. He has perfected me. And he's perfected you. Legally, in the sight of God, you and I are declared perfect. Not guilty. I just made some of you really happy. If you're Pentecostal, you'd dance. But you're not, so don't. <laughs> Believers, then, how do we live? You and I offer no atoning sacrifices. There's only one atoning sacrifice. That is Jesus Christ. This is why I make such a big deal. I know, well, why are you picking on having altars at the front of a church? Because it communicates the wrong thing. There is one altar. It was a cross outside the city of Jerusalem where our Savior died. No more altars. Him. Now, I offer my body, according to Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, he's perfected forever, mm. to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect you see you're perfect and you're being made perfect you're perfect legally and you're being made perfect practically and the ultimate end of that being made perfect practically is when the lord comes back and glorifies you by freeing you from this body of sin 
through glorious transformation. Christian, you're going to get that. You, you follow me? One of these days, you're not going to be able to sin. Amen. You can get happy about that. One of these days, you won't fall anymore. One of these days, you won't stumble. One of these days, you will never again sin. Right now, you're just in the process. But the process is the result of an accomplishment by Christ. Not your doing what he did. So when you and I come to worship, my brothers and sisters, we ought to gather. The text tells us, don't forsake assembling, gather. But we gather, and we can gather all sorts of places. You know, we've got brethren in this world who are gathering in very dark places right now because to gather publicly would be the end of their lives, so they're gathering in secret. And sometimes they can't even sing because somebody might hear We will have family that we have not met who will seal their testimony the day by their death. Christian, here is new covenant worship. The location is where the people of God are. The participants are a royal priesthood. And the basis is what was done for us by Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection. And we worship a Christ who is already enthroned and even now reigns as he puts all of his enemies under his feet. My friend, if you're a Christian, you're already, you've been subdued, right? Glorious to be so conquered, right? I'm not complaining. The king who had found a rebel and said, you're mine. I said, yes, sir. Amen. My king. I'm yours. My friend, if you don't know Christ, he is the king. He is the savior. You're going to bow your knee either now or later, but it shall happen. You will bow now to your everlasting salvation, repenting and believing and trusting him, or you will bow then to your everlasting damnation, knowing there is no hope. And you loved your sin, your rebellion, and Satan more than you loved him. The Lord seeks worshipers who come in spirit and in truth. May we so come today. Father, We are thoughtless, we are distracted, we are disposed to be discouraged, frustrated, 
feel like extraordinary failures. And then at other times, Lord, we are arrogant beyond reckoning. And rather than hearing what you say and singing and submitting ourselves, we sit in judgment and we critique and we criticize. Oh God, forgive us. What we do is for your glory, not ours. For your honor, not for our pleasure. May we learn to take pleasure in the true worship of our glorious King, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we now pray. Amen. Let's stand now and sing in response to him.